The scripture reading this morning is from the book of Nahum and Romans chapter 6. Hear the word of the Lord. Nahum 1, beginning in verse 7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. And then Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, yet we're in this series where we're looking to see who Jesus is and where he appears throughout the minor prophets. And this morning, we're looking at the book of Nahum. And if I were to guess, um, I'm, probably, I'm probably right about this, but can you think of one of your favorite verses from the book of Nahum? You know, have you ever heard a sermon on it? Um, I actually have a friend who spoke to me this morning and said, wow, you're doing Nahum. I said, yeah. He goes, I just listened to a guy on a podcast who said, you'll never hear a sermon over Nahum. Uh, so, like, this is, this is a strange little book for a lot of different reasons. But one of the reasons why you never hear much about Nahum is Nahum is a book full of judgment. Lots of judgment. Um, and, and if one of your friends says, hey, you're pretty judgy, that's not a compliment. Like, you know, the idea of judgment, um, as we think about it in our culture, can be very off-putting and unappealing. But that's kind of the problem, is that when you think about the idea of judgment, it's actually better to say, what does God mean by judgment? Like, what, what does judgment mean? And ways to think about the idea of judgment are things like discerning, the ability to accurately see and assess something for what it is, like to actually see if it is what it is, to understand, is this something that leads to life or is this something that leads to damage? Is this something that leads to death? Is this, is this idea that I'm processing right because I say it's right or is there actually something greater than me that determines if something is good or not? And that's the idea of judgment. Now, the word judgment, part of the reason why it's so hard to hear is because so many people have used it so inappropriately and put themselves in the place of God to say judged, which is another word for condemned and now unreachable. But in the Bible, even in this book, Nahum, which is like 98% stuff that you're going to read one time and kind of go, I'm glad I wasn't around during that time because God is judging Nineveh. Even in, that, even in this book, there are places where we find things that I would say could be memory verses that you think about all the time. Go back to Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Those same words are going to the same people who are being judged. God never judges in such a way that there's no way out. That's what the gospel of grace is. God is accurately assessing the people of Nineveh here, and he's saying, hear me as you hear these next words. Understand this. I am good. I am a refuge in time of trouble. I care for those who trust in me. He is saying that both to the people who are being exploited and to the offenders. But he is also saying, 
that if you continue to pursue these things that are opposed to who I am, I'm giving you a heads up. It's going to lead to destruction, and actually, I'm going to stop it. And so that, that's something that, you know, if you are the center of the universe personally and you're deciding what's good and what's wrong, it's a very kind of dangerous place to be because my opinion changes all the time, right? There's a God who never changes, a God who speaks truth that's actually something we can cling to even when our hearts tell us, I don't know if that's right or not. We could say, okay, what does God say? What is the maker of heaven and earth said? What is the one who's decided that the stars and the moon and the sun and all that has been placed where it is will stay there and that's where it should be? What does he say? And that's where the prophet Nahum is coming from. Now, let's do a little thought process together on the idea of judgment. How important is judgment to you? You ever heard of this island? Um, I'm probably going to say it wrong, so I'm sorry, but Iha de Quemeda Grande. You ever heard of this island? I bet you haven't visited this island. It's about 90 miles off the, co- off the coast of Sao Paulo in Brazil. It's a beautiful place. There's all these sand. Um, you won't find any VRBOs there or, you know, because you can't really go there. It's illegal to go there. But the main attraction for the island is this. It is called Snake Island. There are 4,000 golden lanceheads on this island, which again probably means nothing to you because you've never seen one because they're only on this island. They are vipers, and no one survives the bite. You have 45 minutes until the excruciating reality of what's going on takes place. And um, they call it Snake Island for a reason. But they're not the only inhabitants of the island. There's lots of other little cute snakes and safe snakes and little snakes and big snakes. It is said that on that island, because the only people who go there are herpetologists who are studying, you cannot go more than one step without dodging, stepping around, avoiding a snake. The entire island, right? All right. Are you confident enough in your ability to judge which snakes are safe and which ones aren't to go visit that island? Probably not, because it's a dangerous place. And what the scriptures tell us is that here's the world you live in. Someone is going to be your God. Something is going to be your Lord. There's going to be some kind of affections in your heart that are central to who you are. What are they? And God's saying, if you hack into it and figure it out by yourself, it's like trying to navigate an island full of golden lanceheads. You can't do it. And so he gives us his word to guide and direct our steps. The book Nahum, the word Nahum, a book full of judgment, actually means comfort or reassurance. The idea of judgment is actually meant to bring to us the knowledge that there is a God who is actually who he says he is. And it's meant to bring comfort to us that you aren't actually just supposed to figure it out by yourself, that God has spoken in his word to direct your heart. So, as strange as it sounds, this book of judgment is meant to bring us comfort because the God who is has spoken. The main kind of points I'm going to make from um, what we're going to look at in Nahum here are these three ideas. One is we're going to look at the character of God, how that brings comfort. The love of God, how that brings comfort. And then what it means to live in light of the reality of God's character and God's love. So God's character, his love, and then what it means to live in light of it. And mostly that last point will come from making connections to Romans 6. So first, comforted by God's character. What do we learn about God's character from the book of Nahum? It's only three chapters long. You can blow through it if you want to read it. But let me point some ideas out. One, if you look at verses 1 through 8, it tells us about the mighty and protective ruler that God is that he is mighty and that he is powerful. 
Verses 1 and 2, we read about how nothing goes unnoticed, that he, that he will not allow wrongs to go unchallenged. Remember verse 7. If you're someone who trusts in the Lord, the Lord is telling you right here, there's nothing that goes unnoticed. There's no wrongs that won't be made right. That there's nothing that sin has broken that I will not redeem and renew. So it's really encouraging. It's also really terrifying. It means you haven't gotten away with anything, ever. God knows all things. Verses 3 and 4, we read that the Lord is slow to anger, but great in power. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. So whatever you want to say about what God's doing in this moment, he, he wants to remind you, I am slow to anger. My goal is not to destroy you. My goal is to lead you towards things that will bring life, that will bring hope into your life. Verses 3 to 5, God shows up. What happens when God shows up? He rebukes the sea. It dries up. He makes the rivers run dry. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm. Like, do you get the point? God's not a superhero, but it's kind of like a superhero thing, right? He glides in on clouds. The earth trembles before him. Um, the earth responds to his very presence. And part of the point of what the writer is saying here, uh, Nahum is saying, and he goes on to talk about Bashan and Carmel and these, these other areas in Lebanon, is that there's no one and there's nothing that can stand against this mighty God. What a great hope for you. Because what we read in the Scriptures is that our God is gracious. As Nahum mentions part of the psalm here, he's slow to anger and abounding in love. Verse 7, we read that the Lord is good, that he's a refuge in times of trouble, that he cares for those who trust in him. What do you really trust in? You know, last night I was trusting that the Astros would win. And then two grand slams, I was like, what's going to happen? I'm still trusting that they're going to win. There's a reason why there's more than one game in the series. Everybody just kind of relax here for a second. But, like, what do you really trust in? You know, you're trusting in the chairs you sit in. None of you look like you're wondering if they're going to crack beneath you. Like, you're trusting the seed's going to hold you. For greater things, what do you really trust in? In those dark, sad moments, what are you giving yourself to? What are you really trusting in? In those moments where you're really celebrating the good things God has done, you kind of go, I'm killing it. Or do you say, Lord, you're so good to me. You've been gracious to me. Like, what do you trust in? Verse 8, with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end to Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Now, if you remember the book of Jonah, that is, that's who Nahum is writing to here. 130 years before Nahum is written is the story of Jonah. And remember, Jonah, his approach was, look, they don't love you. Let's just kind of Let's don't go that direction. The Lord is revealed there. The people in Nineveh put their trust in him. And now we're 130 years later. And we learn that they are a brutal, brutal people. And not just from the scriptures. Ancient Near Eastern uh, historical accounts talk about how the sacrifice of children and, and the exploitation of people and slavery, like they were a rough crew. And we read here that though God is slow to anger, what is he ultimately going to do to all things that are death bringers in our world? He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. There's no place God is not willing to go to bring his light. That's good news for us. There are times in my own life where I wonder, where is God in this moment? Where can God be in the moment for this person that I love? God is saying there's no place he will not go to bring the reality of his faithfulness. Verse 15, chapter 1, verse 15. Look, 
there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. So all this judgment's happening, and God is continuing to provide a way out. He's saying, listen, these ways are leading you down this path, but, but here's the message I really want you to take away from this. Rather than move towards the darkness, hear the messenger, the one who proclaims peace, the good message, the gospel, his love for us. And then in chapter 2, verse 13, chapter 3, verse 5, we read um, this, where Nahum says, I am against you, declares the Lord. He is a judge. He's telling the Assyrians, no more. My people are not going to be exploited anymore. The people of Judah have been crying out for God to hear him, to hear them. He finally is in their minds, and he's bringing in his judgment to say, yes, this will be a place centered on my goodness, and I'm going to make it happen. Do you like the idea of a judge? Have you ever had, any, ever had anything stolen from you? I remember my little brother and I, um, we would share toys, and maybe if you have sons, you know what this is like, but one of them makes an accusation against the other. He hit me. He stole this. They took this, like all these different things. Can you imagine if your mom or your dad did this to the uh, offended party, whoever that might be? Okay, Brad, I hear you. Now, Joey, tell me what happened. And whatever you say happened, that's what we're going to go with. Like, it would be so unfair. You're expecting your parents to say, I'm going to hear what's happening, and then I'm going to make my best judgment. And sometimes they're wrong, because my brother got away with a lot of stuff. <laughs> a lot. God is never wrong. God will never exploit you. He will never be unfaithful to you. He will always fulfill his promises, even when your heart, as Jeremiah, or Jeremiah tells us, that our heart's deceitful above all things. Even when your heart is like, there's no way God can be good in this. God is saying, I need you to trust me. I need you to trust me when even your heart isn't trusting me. Can you look to me as your good and gracious God? Remember, I'm mighty in all my ways. I'm powerful. The earth trembles beneath my feet. I will chase death into the darkest of darks. And I am sending you this message. I come to proclaim peace. God's approach to you this morning is to say, I am God, and these things are what I've made you for. But here's the message. If you will follow me, if you will trust in me, I will care for you, and my message for you is peace. The idea of God judging is something at first that might grind against us because it starts to reveal your own heart. I, I, Brad Wright, I am a sinner in need of God's grace. If you know me well enough, you probably have examples. My poor staff like, now I've been here for over a year, and the truth has come out. Like, I need grace. You need grace. And it can be terrifying to think God's a judge who sees that clearly into our hearts until you realize that he wants you to see this message, the greatest message, the highest message from the mountains coming down saying, I am coming to bring peace. That, that's where we're headed. Yeah, but how? I need you to start with this. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble, he cares for those who trust in him. That's our starting point. Start with this. Follow me. It will lead to more of that. More of him being good. More of him being a refuge. More of um, understanding that he's worth trusting. For God to judge means we believe that he has authority over all things to say what's right and wrong. It means that we discover that his judgment brings life and good things. You know, I, I joked about this last week, but like, the scriptures and the Ten Commandments tell us that we shouldn't kill people. That's a great practice if you want to have friends. You shouldn't bear false testimony if you want people to trust you. 
should honor the Lord because he's worthy to be honored. Like, God gives us his law so that we can know the path that leads to life, not to shame us. And that's where the church fails sometimes. It's really good at pointing out where you fail, but it forgets this message right here. He comes down from the mountain, the one whose feet brings a message of peace. So whatever kind of things you've got going on in your head about God being judged and thinking, well, this means he's no longer interested in me, no. He comes to bring peace. When you're afraid, when you fail, when your body fails, when things don't go as you'd hope, when people betray you that shouldn't, remember, there is a God who judges all things, and he is good, and he is gracious to all those who will trust in him. It's in those moments we run back to Nahum 1, verse 7. If you want a verse to memorize that probably most people don't think much about, that's it. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. What a great thing for our children to think about while they're at school and something's bothering them. Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. There's no other qualification there. It doesn't say for only those who qualify, for only those who have their acts together, for only those who haven't made certain mistakes. No, it says he cares for those who trust in him. God's judgment is meant to bring us comfort because if we trust in him, he cares for us and his ways are good. Which leads to the second idea that we can be comforted by God's love. What do we mean by that? You know, the Lord, if you read Nahum, he's clearly condemning the actions of the Ninevites. He's condemning the actions of the Assyrians. You know, I, um, I, I will break this yoke from their neck. I'll tear your shackles away. The Lord's given command. Uh, concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I'll destroy the images and idols that are in the temple of your gods. I'll prepare your grave. God is not playing. We worship a God who is not to be trifled with. And yet, he wants us to understand that what he, what he wants us to really cling to is this continual promise that he is good, that he is our refuge. Are you getting the subtext here? Those other things are false refuges. They're false places. They don't actually offer what they promise. We're meant to be comforted by God's love. Nahum chapter 2, verse 2, The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid them waste and have ruined their vines. You know, it's one thing for God's love to just forgive us. And as Christians, we believe Jesus died for our sins and that the things that we do are because of his death on the cross, we're actually forgiven. But that's not the entirety of God's grace towards us. He doesn't just come to forgive, he comes to restore. The Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, though destroyers have laid waste and have ruined their vines. You know, God comes to offer us forgiveness, but to also to make things not just better, but as they were meant to be. You know, every now and then I can be kind of a klutz. Um, I was sitting at Starbucks with my wife, Jamie, we had these really nice almond milk lattes. It was a nice, cool, crisp morning. We go to sit at our table, and as soon as we sit down, you know, can you tell I talk with my hands a little bit? As soon as we sit down, I say something and just launch that venti almond milk latte outside, thankfully, across onto the other table. I'm like, this is so lame. Like, we were going to sit down and enjoy our time together, and now I've done this, so I'm trying to clean it up, and I'm getting napkins and stuff, and as soon as I open the door to throw my stuff away to go back inside, there's a Starbucks employee who's standing there who just hands me another latte and says, we got you. 
And I was like, oh, it's so nice. And so then I sat back down with Jamie. Like, I wasn't just forgiven. Do you see? Things were restored. They're, they're back to the way they're meant to be. Now we get to enjoy our lattes together. You know, the Lord is good to us in such more significant and meaningful and eternal ways. How? Ways you can't quite understand, that's for sure. But also, for example, to make you a part of his body, a part of the church, a part of his people. You know, if your hope is in Christ, this is our family. God has given us an opportunity just to get to know each other in this life, to develop friendships that will extend well into eternity. That's the party you're now part of because the Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Look there on the mountains, the feet of the one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, Judah. Yes, the world is not as it's meant to be, but God is in the process of making things new. And it starts in our hearts because he loves us so much. This third idea. How does the character and love of God comfort us in this life? Let me go back to Romans 6 real quick. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. So this idea of baptism, um, if you're not real familiar with it, it's the idea of being completely covered by, immersed, sort of completely defined by. And so Jesus in Matthew chapter 28 tells his disciples, go out into all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you to the very end of the age. And so baptism, you know, we baptize people in our church, obviously. When you're baptized, it's a sign of God's promise upon you. And if you're a child and you're part of the covenant family, we baptize you as a child because we believe God's given you to us to follow him. And then eventually as you grow older, you'll celebrate the Lord's Supper and become like an active follower of Jesus that you understand, celebrating communion. You're one of his people. But this baptism idea is meant to remind us who we are defined by, who we identify with. And what Paul does in Romans 6 is he talks about some of the implications of that. We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul is saying Christ's death for us, for judgment, becomes our death. Jesus is actually judged completely for the sins of the world we read in the Gospel of John. But he doesn't come to condemn the world, he comes to save it. If our faith is in Jesus, we're baptized into his death. His death becomes our death. And then in verse 4, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may have a new life. Do you see? There it is again. The reality of us sinning, Paul's admitting we're all going to struggle. We're all going to struggle to believe that God is who he says he is. We're all going to struggle to live in line with his promises. We're all going to make mistakes. That, that's, that's happening. But Paul is saying there's something new happening in us. Our sins are now identified with Jesus, but also his death becomes our death. His burial becomes our burial, and his resurrection becomes our resurrection. 
so we can have new life. Verse 5 of chapter 6 in Romans, For we have been united with him in death like his. We will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection like his. What is the purpose of judgment? And Nahum, what's the purpose of judgment throughout the Scriptures? It's so that we can see the world as it really is. So that when you walk on Snake Island, you don't have to wonder, is this a lance head? Or is this a safe little guy? Or like what? God gives us direction so that we can know the truth of who he is. You know, some of you know my daughter Avery. And we had a big event last week. Um, she got engaged. And so we're super excited about that. Noah's an incredible young man. We're grateful for him. But when she came in, so they, they had dinner and they ate together. And then they came to this house where Noah's parents and Jamie and I and like 50 of her friends were all waiting in the house, unbeknownst to her. And so she comes in the door and I hug her and Kyla, Noah's mom, she hugs him. And the first thing she does is what? Look, I got a ring. Now the ring isn't the marriage. The ring isn't the love. It's a symbol of something so important and so significant that what's true of that ring is true of my daughter, that she's engaged. It's a promise. And God wants you, when you think about your baptism, to think about it that significantly. Baptism is not something that just happens to you once and you sort of move on. You're meant to think about it often. Paul gives us this example here of how we think about, you know, I've been baptized. Jesus' death was my death. I've been baptized. Jesus' resurrection is my resurrection. And so for yourself, it allows you to actually believe that God has something new for you. Or as Paul said here, that we may have a new, live a new life. A life that is seeking to follow after him. A life that's seeking a way out. A life as we see here, a message to the Ninevites to remember that the Lord is good. That he is a refuge. That he cares for those who trust in him. But it also helps us love other people. You ever act really surprised when someone sins against you? I just can't believe they did that. Why can't you believe it? We're broken. We make mistakes. What do we do with people in our lives that are broken? It's not that we pretend like those things didn't happen. Remember, God does judge. We do deal with truth. That's, that's right. But we're people who actually have a mechanism to provide forgiveness and restoration. Forgiveness and restoration for ourselves, forgiveness and restoration for those in our lives, that there's actually nothing that is so big that God cannot chase into the darkness to provide a way for us to actually have peace with him and peace with one another. The gospel of God's grace is big enough to provide that kind of promise for us, that kind of grace for us. Now, this strange little book in the Older Testament, one of these minor prophets that probably wasn't in your devotional guide in the past, you know, 15 years or whatever. Nahum chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord is good. He's a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. You know, that's my prayer, is that this week as you go about what God calls you to, that you remember what Jesus has done for you. That you remember as a starting point, as confusing as it may be, as difficult as it may be, if somehow the Astros don't deliver, you know, whatever it is you're struggling with this next week, to remember that there is one we can trust in. There's one who's always good. There's one who can be our refuge. There's one whose grace is sufficient for us. And he approaches us and brings a message of peace. Let's pray together as we approach the table. Lord Jesus, we do remember the words of the prophet Nahum, that we can trust in you, that you are our refuge, that yes, you are a judge who sees the world as it is and sees our hearts for what they are, 
But you're also one who provides a way out. One who provides a way for us to experience this peace, this message you bring to us, that you're the one who brings restoration. Lord, would you increase our faith this week? Enable us to actually believe that you are who you say you are, the bringer of good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ. We ask all this in your name. Amen.